From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dee Dee Hibbler says her current job as entertainment consultant for the DeKalb County government is an old music lady's dream come true. It turns out that every job she's had, from selling music at Turtles Records and Tapes to managing an upstart band called Outcast to running T.I.'s King Foundation, has materialized in part by envisioning what she wants and by showing up, making that phone call, sending that follow-up note, and taking risks, often working for free to get her foot in the door. Well, Dee Dee's tried on a lot of roles for size, and she's had a lot of names. Dee Dee Murray, Mama Dee Dee, but this is how you may know her. Hey, players. This Peaches coming back at you one more again with a big what's said. Break out your black love and your boons fall as I send it out one more time for East Point, College Park, Decatur, and the Swats. We got that Southern playlist of Cadillac funky music for your trunk. Dee Dee's voice there on the hip hop duo Outcast debut album, Southern Playlist at Cadillac Music. That's from 1994. Well, she's joining me in the studio now to discuss 25 years in the music and now film and TV business. Dee Dee, so great to have you with us. Hi. Thank you for being hey, here. Hey, player. <laughs> <laughs> do you get asked to do that all the time? I do, and it's such a pleasure. <laughs> so what's the story behind that? How did you end up on that record? Okay, just a little backup. You were working with Outkast. You were part of the Organized yeah. Noise Productions, Dungeon Family, all yeah. that. But you were in the studio that day. Yeah, I was in the studio, the only girl. with my. Sing- I was a single mother with my baby wrapped in a blanket. <laughs> tossed in the corner while we continued continued to work. But that particular day when we recorded the intro for Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music was a special day because we had completed the album. Mm. The album had gone through several different remixes. The guys had gone to New York with their engineer. Um, his name is Neil Pogue, NHP Productions. Shout out to Neil. <laughs> um, but he's a great engineer that engineered a lot of fabulous music in the 90s. But we, um, we were nearing the end and actually sequencing the record, which is when you listen to different variations of it, mm-hmm. Play it in various orders to get the feel of the record. Oh, right. So which song comes after yeah, which? Yeah, yeah. And that's an intricate process within itself because you may, you'll listen all day long to different variations of the record with this song first, that song next. And then you listen to that, you find that perfect mix and you know it's right. Because we felt it, we heard it, we were all kind of silent, like, wow, this, this, this sounds like a movie would, would look so and that's what we we were envisioning in our mind. This is really what a movie would sound like if this was the movie of Atlanta at the time. That is so interesting because yeah. it really is cinematic in it many is. ways. It's descriptions it of the city and what it was like oh, yeah. to live in the city at that oh, time. Yeah. And that's so interesting because you went on to work in the film business. I did. But I want to go through because you've had so many <laughs> crazy, wonderful uh, career jumps, I would say, reeling back to what you were doing. You were wearing mm-hmm. that green smock, selling turtles, records, yes. and tapes. Yep. So then you wanted to be in college radio. Check. Yep, you got check. a job. Offered a job as news director. Check, check. right? Yeah. Record company promotions. Yep, check. All right, music production. <laughs> check. Wanted to work in film. 
Check. All right. Sounds ideal. <laughs> Any bumps along the way, Dee Dee? Oh, yeah. Plenty of bumps along the way. I mean, health issues. I'm a breast cancer survivor. Oh, all right. Um, divorcee, you know, found a, the, the love of my life and lost him, too. So. <laughs> but through it all, just great triumphs, you know, through the tragedies, just many victories. And if I had it to do over again, I would. Oh. Every minute of it. Every minute. Oh, that's beautiful. And yeah. so one of the things that characterize your career is that you would set your sights on something and some sometimes even volunteer to get your foot in the door, including with this was back in the I guess it was early 90s. You were cap. You were assistant to Keith Fry Mm -hmm. at Capitol Records. Mm -hmm. So this was, you know, when they were starting to do black divisions of music in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. What was the what was the scene looking like? back? Oh, well, it was it was beautiful because, well, if if we back up a step, I had to volunteer at V103. That was a job I wanted. Right. And my mom and dad owned a restaurant in underground at the time called the Boston Light. And I'd have to work at the Boston Light during the day and go and and volunteer at V103 just to get my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And my boss, who was Ray Boyd, who was the my boss at Capitol's best friend. It all ties together in a second. <laughs> but uh, Ray would just let me do whatever I wanted to do. He would let me preview music. He let me uh, program music on the weekends. Anything that I wanted to learn how to do, Ray Boyd was an open book and taught me. He taught me everything about programming. So, you know, that that led to me seeing music executives coming in and out of the records of, of the uh, radio station. They'd bring their artists in. They'd take us to lunch. And I was like, man, that's such a cool job to have, to just have to go around to all of the record stores with the artists and set up meet and greets and retail, uh, just little parties and stuff like that. So I'm like, man, I want to do that one day. So lo and behold, my boss, Ray, at V103, got a job at WBLS in New York. Mm-hmm. And he was like, baby, I can't take you. But, you know, my friend Keith over here at Capitol Records needs an assistant. So I want you to go meet with Keith because he'll be safe. You know, he'll take care of you. He'll love you like I love you. And you'll be fine. I want you to go work at Capitol Records. So I said, OK. So <laughs> I went and met Keith Fry. And he was like, so when can you start? <laughs> That's what you want to hear. I'm like, tomorrow. He was like, okay, well, you can't wear jeans. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) which was very different from my my radio world because nobody saw us in radio. We could wear sweats and ball caps and <laughs> look however we wanted to look because it was, it's because it was radio. Nobody saw us. They just heard us. One of the things I love about it. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the in the record company world, you had to be presentable. You had to be able to comfortably uh, take the artist around. So he wanted us to look a certain way, to be presentable, to look, to reflect him. He always wore suits every single day. So, um it was a change. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. But, but it was it was awesome because we got to work. I worked with Donny Osmond. I worked with the, okay, Freddie that Jackson. That is not the first one I thought no. would come up. It was great. I was right. working with Donny Osmond. <laughs> yeah, he was so nice. Um, but Freddie Jackson, The Whispers, The mm-hmm. Gap Band, Melba Moore, um, Full Force, uh, just a host of different types of artists that we got a chance to really interact with. 
plan promotions for across the country and go with them to, to all of the radio stations and the, and the retail outlets to introduce them to the public. So, so it was you, awesome. were, you were the lady with the credit card paying for lunch then? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Dee Dee Hibbler. She's now entertainment consultant for DeKalb County. She's former first lady of hip-hop in Atlanta. That's what she's known <laughs> as by a lot of people. And we're learning about her career path, which is just a, a quite amazing to follow. So what this is a critical point in your life and in the life really of music, the music business, when they Capitol Records closed mm-hmm. their black music division. Can you tell us why? Oh, yeah, I can. So MC Hammer was one of our biggest artists. He had the song Too Legit to Quit. Too Legit. Yeah. Too Legit to Quit. And it was a it was humongous. You know, he had a huge entourage. You know, he was the man. They laid it all out for him. So his follow-up album uh, had this song called Pumps and the Bump on oh. it. And he was, you know, <laughs> yeah. So that, that led to the demise of the black music Why? What division. happened? I mean, just because it was so bad? Yeah, it was kind of bad and it was a little risque for oh, its right, time. The video. And yeah, the, 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 risque, the music video was risque and it just caused a negative black backlash for our whole department. And because they were spending so much money on MC Hammer, he was the artist that would recoup and pay for everything else. So when that didn't go well, we all lost our jobs. Can you it, tell us about the video? Just describe it to oh us. Oh, my gosh. He was in in these Speedos <laughs> on some rocks dancing. And that's all. I, I, that's, if you just close your eyes and envision MC Hammer on some rocks with some Speedos singing pumps in the bump, pumps in the bump. We like the girls with the pumps in the bump. You know why it all shut down. That was that was like his his second big fashion fail, I would yeah. say. But the CEO Gary Gersh said we're taking a step toward establishing a broader music focus yeah. at Capitol. That was that division. So where did you go to next? You found you wanted to be in the record making business. Yeah. So you know, I I I believe in the law of attraction, and even though I really didn't know what I was doing back in the eighties and nineties, I was truly of just verbalizing and visualizing the next steps in my career. So, you know, I I just said to the universe, look, I want to learn how to make records now. This is great. You know, I've been on the radio. I know how to to play them. I know how to sell them. I'm promoting them. Like, I really want to learn how to make them. And the opportunity came for me to meet Organized Noise. And they made records, good records. (laughs) Yeah. Early records. Give us a give us a little sense of what they were doing at that time for context. Wow. From when I met them, they had just done um, the CB4 soundtrack with a group called Parental Advisory. They had a song called Life Lifeline and they were in the process of recording that album with Pebbles, who later became my employer (laughs) because I needed money. So, um, yeah, they were doing records. They were. um, they did. They did. Brand Nubian, Poor Righteous Teachers, yeah. Tribe Called Quest, yeah. uh, TLC, early TLC. Yeah, yeah. But this was a little bit before that. This was in their very beginning. So their very first placement had happened. They um, had gotten a budget to do parental advisory on Savvy Records, and they were moving forward with that. So a lot of that stuff had not even happened yet. So I got to meet them in the very beginning. My friend Ian Burke was like, "Oh, I want you to meet these guys. They need help. They need some." some organization to their organized noise. And I said, okay, great, because I didn't have a job. 
but I did have a computer and I had some sense. So I would just go to the dungeon every day like it was my job and pull my big IBM laptop out with the dot matrix <laughs> printer <laughs> and sit there and, and we would uh, sign up their, their performance rights uh, at, um, uh, applications. I got all the guys signed up with ASCAP and BMI. We do sample clearances. We I was uh, doing lyrics that we had to turn into the label, credits that we had to turn into the label, all kinds of things. Even braiding hair was one of my tasks. Is that what they called you, Mama Didi? You're taking care of everything. Mm -hmm. Driving everybody around? Driving people around, (laughs) going to interviews, doing whatever it took to get them to that first uh, initial point of contact to to society. Well, okay, so that's really interesting because they did try out um, for LaFace Records, right? And they turned him down. Yeah, we're not in the rap business. No, yeah, we did our initial. uh, I would say it was like a a little uh, uh, showcase for L.A. Reid at the studio back in the day. This was before L.A. This was before the LaFace Family Christmas record came out. So they had just done a few artists. Um, Damien Dame had come out, uh, who Jermaine Jackson had helped sign a few other artists, but they had never delved into hip hop they didn't have a clue to what that was so we did the the uh the showcase and LA returned him now oh. turned him down he was like this is nice but they're not stars did you ever talk to him about that later you know when they became huge stars <laughs> yeah, yeah and he was like yeah peaches <laughs> <laughs> yeah we he knows we all know everybody knows and it's just kind of one of those silent things where you know you were wrong but you had to kind of, you know, eat your pudding and and, <laughs> and 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 let it be what it is cuz you know, they were they were stars. They yeah. are stars and they will be there they've had a global impact on society that we didn't even realize was going to be as impactful as it was. That is DeKalb County Entertainment Consultant Dee Dee Hibbler, also known as Peaches, and an instrumental figure in establishing Atlanta as a hip-hop capital of the South. The multi-platinum Grammy Award-winning duo Outkast is among the artists that she helped to find success, and the first hip-hop act signed to Atlanta R&B label LaFace Records back in 1992. Coming up, we're going to continue our conversation with Dee Dee Hibbler and learn more about the band that declared the South has something to say. As we head into the break, this is So Fresh, So Clean by Outcast. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. And my guest is Dee Dee Hibbler. She consults on film locations and permitting for DeKalb County. And as we heard before the break, her professional life has been a series of setting goals and making them happen, often working for free to get her foot in the door, first in radio, then promotions and marketing for record companies, managing artists, and eventually making records with the Dungeon family. So named for the dingy basement at 1907 Lakewood Terrace in Atlanta, that seated a legendary collective of artists, namely Organized Noise, the production trio behind hit records with artists like TLC, Goody Mob, and most notably Outkast. Didi was married to Ray Murray from Organized Noise. They later divorced, but that wasn't the only split at the production company. Outkast also parted way with Organized Noise. How did that split play out for you? Because it was around the same time as your marriage broke up, if I got that right. Kind of, sort of, but not really. All right. <laughs> um, but Outcast, they evolved. Um, they wanted to start, 
just tapping into their own creativity. So Dre was, he's just an all around creative guy. He painted, he, he drew, he does, he plays all kinds of instruments and they wanted to tap into their own production skills. So they went to Organize Noise and said, hey, we want to be, we want to learn how to produce. And the guys taught them. They taught them everything they needed to know about producing records. And it started with the AT Aliens album. You know, uh, Organized Noise did a certain amount of those records, and Outkast did a certain amount of records. And as they progressed and did more albums, they produced more of their own songs. So when we got to Speaker Box Love Below, they completely produced that whole record. Mm-hmm. One one did one record, and mm-hmm. one did the other. So it was a double album it back double back in album. the day when there were double albums. Yeah, yeah, and they did the whole thing. And we were kind of like, Dag, we have no songs on this record. Like, this is surprising. And we had recorded some, but they just didn't put those songs uh-huh. on the record. So it, it, that was quite a surprise. But, you know, as as parents, when I have to kind of go back to the parental role to have groomed your kids, trained them, trained them up in the way that they should go. And then you see them out doing the things that you taught them. You can kind of feel a way that they didn't include you, but you're also very proud that they've taken on this whole project on their own, recorded it. And it's a diamond album. Yeah. Like it, it, it goes, it surpasses all just everything. Like it, it's yeah, and, and the, the, of course it was a big crossover record. They did. Hey, yeah, yes. huge hit. You know, you can't yes. go to a wedding without hearing. Hey, yeah, yeah at some point. Yeah. And I love the way you move. Just mm-hmm. a huge, huge yeah. record for them. Which Sleepy did, you know, one of Organized Noise, uh, Sleepy Brown, you know, was the was the vocalist on that record. So we didn't completely not have a hand in that record. We just didn't have any songs that were produced by Organized Noise mm-hmm. on that record, which I think, you know, for some time was a sore spot for the guys. Right. And probably, you know, there was I know there was a lot of emotions involved in, you know, them not being a part in their biggest selling record in history. But also it was a proud moment for for us to see our babies evolving in such a huge global way. I mean, we worldwide, <laughs> which was prophetic. That's what I said on the first record, you know, East Point College Park, Decatur, worldwide. <laughs> and here they are worldwide recording artists. So who can be mad at that? So then you get a call from T.I.'s foundation, the King Foundation. Yeah. D- d- does it even surprise you anymore that these well, calls sort of appear out of the blue? You know, that, that, was an, an, that was part of my transition because when Ray and I divorced, I had to really look at where I was in, in the involvement in order for me to fully heal and get over our divorce. I had to separate myself from not only my ex-husband, but from Organized Noise. From the business for me to, you know, just realize who I was, who I am as a woman. I had to totally sever ties and take my career in a totally opposite direction. So I started working in nonprofit and then I got a call from T.I.'s from a a lady on his board Mm -hmm. and said that they were looking for an executive director. And I was interested because this is the direction that I was naturally going in. So to land a job. You know, as a director, executive director of T.I.'s King Foundation was like, oh, 
great. <laughs> this is a great natural move for me. Um, I was already kind of doing some things with a, a man named Waleed Champsadeen, who um, had an organization called Youth Vibe. Waleed's family owns the Supreme Fish Delight chain, which if anybody... It, Anybody from Atlanta knows about Supreme Fish. But for 20 years, they had an organization called Youth Vibe that uh, provided after free after-school services for high school students. So Waleed helped me do board development for this organization. We made it real. We made it tangible. Our focus was on uh, children of incarcerated parents mm-hmm. um, because those kids were truly in need of giving. And with T.I. and his background with, you know, having some run-ins with the law, right. that was something that was really true and personal for him, you know, to serve underprivileged kids. So he was really doing some things that were really making a direct impact on children in hard-hit communities. And, and also in, in the southwest Atlanta, right? And Center Hill, mm-hmm. uh, he spent, million, I guess, $3 million since in the past couple of years to buy properties mm-hmm. and plots of land. Mm-hmm. This is the place where he grew up. So mm-hmm. that that's an interesting thing. You know, suddenly uh, you helped sort of form the hip-hop economy in many ways through your work with Organized Noise yeah. Productions. Yeah. And now you're looking at somebody who's benefited from that giving back to the community. Okay, yeah, I remember the day that KP, who used to be the DJ for PA, for which was one of the first groups that Organized Noise produced, um, KP pro- brought T.I. to the studio when he was about 15 to 16 years uh-huh. old. And he was like, yeah, he, this is going to be the next big rap artist. He's on my label, Ghetto Vision. He's going to really, you know, be a big guy. And I remember meeting him and he was like, hi, ma'am, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about that. We often talked about it. I said, I remember the day that KP brought you to my house and told me that you were getting ready to be his first artist. I remember that. And he remembered it, too. He was like, yeah, I remember coming to your house. I was scared. (laughs) And so many since then, little Yachty. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, you've watched these kids grow into these big stars. Oh, yeah. Even ones today, I mentor a lot of young stars like um, Rory, who is on Love Renaissance, um, Black, who is one of their artists, a lot of young artists that, you know, are really up and coming and not just in Atlanta. But now that we have social media, I connect with a lot of artists that have career aspirations and I listen to their music and give them feedback. And it's just what I love to do. It feeds my passion. Music is my passion. I always love it. And I don't need a dime from it in order to feed into it. You know, you've you've managed to make a living doing other things while you've even volunteered mm-hmm. and, and working for your passion. But what is this? Faith? Is it belief? Is it, it what? I mean, I my belief that, you know, the powers to manifest whatever we want are within us. Like we we are made in God's image. Like we have the power of God within us. And that's what I firmly believe in. I truly feel like if you if there's something that you want you visualize it, you work toward it, and you, you make it manifest. Like, you have the power to make it manifest, and all you got to do is focus on it. If you focus on writing a book, you write the book. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I have to put my focus on because I have a book in me, but I have so many other I'd things going you on. Have a book in I you. have to focus and do it. You know, and I, I really came to that realization when I got breast cancer. And 
you go through all of these surgeries and they tell you how sick you are. And then you you ha- you watch your body heal itself. Mm. So to see myself, you know, have all of these just radical surgeries and, you know, every day watch myself go from bad to better, you know, a little bit better then OK, I can walk. <laughs> OK, it doesn't hurt when I laugh. OK, it, I, I can do these things and I can see the physical manifestation of the healing happening, you know, just by just our own internal systems is there. We have it. So where did you get that? Where did that come (laughs) from for you? Do you think, I mean, I know you said the breast cancer, that's a huge life event that turns things around, but were you raised that way? Were you raised to believe that you could do anything? Well, my mom is, she can do anything. My mom is, she's just a divine being within herself. And I watched her, just go through a lot of circumstances when she married her husband uh, her second husband about three or four years after that he had a debilitating stroke that paralyzed him and I watched her love him back to health and to see my mom you know just manifest the things that she wanted to manifest in her life she's like okay one day she called me and she was like I'm, I'm moving to Jamaica we're just selling everything and we're moving to Jamaica. And I said, okay, mom, what were you smoking this morning? But <laughs> all righty, <laughs> we're going to have yard sales in the yard and we're moving and I'm going to have dual citizenship. And she did it. She did it all. And the man that she loved, the, the doctors told us that, you know, they were like, get your black dresses. He's about to go. That man lived for 20 years longer. Oh, she loved goodness. him back to life. And I think that, he was not, I, I just watched him just be there, be there for her, you know, make sure that he was, that she was stable and okay before he just quietly went in his sleep one day. My guest is Dee Dee Hibbler. She's now entertainment consultant for DeKalb County. I want to definitely get to what you're doing now because you were then doing grants for the Department of Human Services, mm-hmm. wanted to get into the movie business, another called Drops from mm-hmm. the Sky. Mm-hmm. LaRonda Sutton is the woman who called you. So what was what were you doing and what was her offer? What I was doing was uh, recovering from breast cancer, yeah. trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. It was 2015. I was working at this uh, marketing company And I had just got cleared to work from my doctors. And I was like, okay, let me see if I can work. Let me just see if I can do it. So I was catching a train every day, going downtown to the marketing company that I worked for. And it didn't matter what the weather was. I was just happy to be working. And I saw all of the film activity that was happening. I saw the yellow signs. I would see the trucks. I would see the people running around. And I'm like, man, I want to do that. (laughs) I really, really want to do that. So um, I was continuing on my path, working with uh, this marketing company, and LaRonda Sutton called, and she was like, hey, Didi, what you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm working at this company, and, you know, it's not really what I want to do, but I'm doing it, and, and I'm working, and I'm happy with that. So she was like, I'm starting a, a, a film company, and I really need somebody around me that I can trust because I'm starting it from my home. <laughs> Money wasn't an option for me because I really – saw the opportunity to learn. I did it for a year. Um, and then the opportunity came for me to go do a project for DeKalb County. And it was a five-week a five week opportunity that was paid only $2,000. Oh, my goodness. Five weeks, $2,000. Do I take this opportunity or not? 
And the spirit within me was like, do you trust me? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. So I, I, I took the opportunity. I trusted my instinct. That opportunity continued to grow. That $5,000 doubled. The time doubled. The, <laughs> the, it just extended into where we are today. And that's been, that was three years ago. <laughs> okay, so I will get to what you're doing now. But I'm thinking of... All right. You had some support, right? You had child support. And back in the day, maybe you could maybe Atlanta was a place where you could live fairly cheaply. Yeah. Yeah. But, but do, do you think that's possible for people now to say, I mean, I have a lot of money, but, you know, now you're paying a thousand dollars a month for a studio apartment in, in, in most places in Atlanta. Right. Even even this sort of, you know, yeah. transitioning neighborhoods, yeah. as they say. Yeah. So so how would you encourage people who want to follow your lead and envision things that they want and 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 try and figure out how to get their foot in the door and live on not much money. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to take risks. And with those risks, you have to make adjustments. So for me, it's a decision. It's like, okay, do I not buy that $100 pair of shoes that I saw at Neiman Marcus that I would love to have or, you know, go out to eat with my kids at, you know, they love Red Lobster, you know, no more Red Lobster Fridays (laughs) for a while. So you have to be willing to make the adjustments to the lifestyle to be able to live below your means when you have opportunities that can catapult your career to the next level. So for me, it's just a matter of decisions and discipline. For me, the, the opportunity was more important than, you know, how we lived our lives and, and spending money and cashing out and, and living up to the expectations of others. You know, <laughs> so now you're the person who's handing out those permits for those yellow signs, mm-hmm. and you're the one who won't tell us what what you're permitting where because you need to keep those things secret. Yeah, yeah. but that's so exciting. This whole other it, it strikes me that you've been with the dominant medium of the time, right? There's radio when radio right. was the way that people found out about music and right. learned about new artists, right. right? This burgeoning scene for right. Atlanta and and R and B. I think R and B in that market most definitely. Then into the hip hop scene when. And it was just beginning here in Atlanta. And now you're in the movie business, of course, the movie business thriving here. So what's next, like virtual reality or something? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Next, I want to just travel. I just want to spend my 60s traveling, you know, with with the love of my life whoever he is, <laughs> we're going to start manifesting him. <laughs> okay. You, you, you've been pretty successful so far at all the job stuff. Yeah. But that's, that's the one thing I haven't been able to successfully manifest is, you know, my personal love life. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. I have other loves. <laughs> Including great kids. Great Sounds kids. Like doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all the location managers that I have to talk to every single day, all day long, you know, they love me too. <laughs> <laughs> Didi Hibbler, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Didi Hibbler, an entertainment consultant now for DeKalb County. She's worked in the entertainment business for more than 25 years. She started, of course, when she was 12, right, Didi? Yes. <laughs> I've been 26 for over 20 years, and the math doesn't work. It's that new math that doesn't add up at all. <laughs> you know, because you've been on the radio, you want to sign out as peaches here? Sure. Hey, players, this Peaches coming back at you one more again (laughs) from Georgia Public Broadcasting on Second Thought with my homegirl, Virginia Prescott, on the mic. Hey.
We worldwide players. We worldwide. From GPB News, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The city of Atlanta is one of the fastest-growing urban areas in the country, with nearly 6 million residents. Data from the city finds median rents up 28% since 2000. That's compared to just 9% nationwide over the same period. And with that growth comes gentrification. As new apartments, renovations, and businesses crop up around the metro area, many longtime residents of neighborhoods are being priced out by higher rents and property taxes. With historic ties between racism and poverty, the displaced families are often people of color, while new residents are predominantly white. GPB's Leah Fleming recently traveled to an affected neighborhood in southwest Atlanta to talk with a group that's pushing back against gentrification. We're in Pittsburgh, Atlanta, to be make sure folks understand that. It is a working class to poor black community. This community is one of the last working class black neighborhoods in Atlanta and is now under the pressure of gentrification. Kamau Franklin is anti-gentrification. He's founder of the nonprofit group Community Movement Builders. Franklin operates out of a small home turned community center in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, where he recently commissioned a mural painted in bold colors with a strong message on the side of this building. We're looking at what I call a lush bureau, which has pictures of a black man, a black woman, and a black child. I think they're looking intense and protective of their community. We have a sign that says, protect the black community, stop gentrification. And what we want to demonstrate with this sign as part of our larger anti-gentrification organizing project is that we're here to defend this community and that folks should not just come in and not see this community as something that has already has roots, that already has residents, that already has culture and community. And that they should think about that before developers usher in and just push people aside. So when you say the word gentrification, Mm -hmm. it's polarizing. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, because gentrification often means the moving in of white people Mm -hmm. or people with money Mm -hmm. to a community that is struggling Mm -hmm. with people of color often. I want to get you to reflect on that. What do you want them to see Mm -hmm. and what do you think they will see when they look at this? Because I know that there are some white people that may be offended. Yeah, and you know, I think part of the reason we did this mural was for it to be controversial, for mm-hmm. it to stand out, for it to be something that you look at tw- twice, three times. And if that worries folks who are thinking about moving into the neighborhood, I think that's a good thing. It means that you stop and you think and you don't just feel like um, that there was nothing there beforehand and I'm going to just make my way as sort of a pioneer in this community. And as people say, make it turn or make it change, the neighborhood doesn't need to change in that way, I think. I think folks understand that there's poverty here, there's development that needs to happen, but it needs to be community-centered. It needs to be controlled by the community, not by outside developers. And quite frankly, I think the city itself and city officials have failed this community and other communities in Atlanta because instead of focusing on the working-class folks that have been here, they've allowed those folks, particularly black folks, to be pushed out to a point where now the so-called mecca of black America is probably no longer going to be a majority black in a few years. There are people that will say, but you know what, without gentrification, there wouldn't be grocery stores coming in. There wouldn't be dilapidated buildings that would be torn down. Without gentrification, there would be no change. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't, you know, there would be no change. 
And what do you say to that? I say they're wrong. I say that the, the things that cause gentrification that push people out of communities is not improving communities. It's taking communities away from people who already live here. So having a grocery store that pays people uh, minimum wage at best does not necessarily improve what's happening in a community. If folks want to look for uh, alternatives or solutions outside the box, a cooperative grocery store which the community owns would be an alternative. Having land trusts in which the community owns the, the land underneath which stabilizes housing prices is another way in which you can help develop and keep a community intact without thinking everything has to be driven by market forces, which I think is the only way that people are taught, quite frankly, to think about how development happens. You certainly want the community to continue to grow and you mm -hmm. want it to develop, but you also want it to stay not necessarily black, but you want mm -hmm. the people that have been here yeah. struggling who want to stay here. You want them to be able yeah. to stay. Well, from my perspective, I do want it to stay black because I think that's important to the character and the history of this community. I don't think bringing in middle class or rich people in and of itself improves a community when it pushes out other folks who've been living and striving and even struggling for decades in that same area. So I don't think that that's a solution. Um, land trusts, community-owned properties, community involvement in development and saying, what, what are our needs? Do we need cleaners or do we need sort of shishi coffee shops, right? Mm -hmm. What do we need in our community to help make things easier for us to, to live? Do we need daycare centers? Do we need childcare centers? Do we need better education? Those are things that we need and should struggle around. I don't think that sort of the easy solution of sort of putting a shine on something uh, and then bringing other folks around and saying, isn't this better, is the way to improve a community like Pittsburgh. Kamal Franklin is the founder of the nonprofit group Community Movement Builders. And now, let's hear a few more voices on the topic of gentrification. First, there's Nathaniel Smith, who is the CEO of the Partnership for Southern Equity, an advocacy group. He agrees with Kamau, arguing that gentrification is not the great equalizer. Gentrification is not good from the, my perspective and the perspective of my organization. It could be a byproduct of development. Um, of unbalanced growth and of development that is not done in a more strategic and focused way. But inherently, it is not a good thing. What is good is neighborhood revitalization. And, 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 and for us, gentrification occurs when people who have the wherewithal to bring back communities that have been disinvested in focus more on attracting people with a higher uh, tax digest um, people who they believe have the ability to create better communities first um, without thinking about the people that are already there first. And and what happens is, is you have this pressure, these market pressures that occur that actually bring in and, 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 and policies and public finance and infrastructure. All of these things are used as a point of entry for new residents at the expense of people that are already there and what we're seeing in Atlanta on many occasions in many of our most underinvested communities, what we're seeing is um, individuals who have been marginalized and have not been supported through f fiscal policy being put in a position of subsidizing their own displacement. Mm -hmm. So what recommendations do you make? I think that many of the communities that are 
African-American in particular in Atlanta, have a history of being disinvested in. It just didn't start yesterday. I mean, we've had issues in terms of the lack of MARTA being a regional transportation system, redlining. Um, most of these older communities have bad infrastructure. You know, so there's a history of disinvestment and a value proposition that has been expressed through public policy and, and, and municipal budgets that have put certain communities over other communities. So we have to put those communities at the center of our policy making. That's number one. Number two, we have to begin the process of making businesses that come to this city and receive public dollars to pay their fair share. You know, we cannot continue to allow stadiums to be built, you know, um, investments to be made, businesses to be attracted in this community that are sucking up so much public money, but are not being required to, to focus on the public good as as a as a requirement for them receiving those type of public dollars. So whether that be through them investing dollars in an affordable housing trust fund where those dollars can be used to help to develop affordable housing or local hiring agreements where those businesses are required to hire people locally or or many other things that 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 our development authority can begin the process of encouraging and even requiring um i think all of those things to a certain extent can play a critical role there's a whole toolbox of policies can, that can be used. But the most important thing that we have to understand is that in this city, in this region, in this state, we have to begin to move towards a revolution of values that elevates the fact that everyone is an asset and no one is a liability. And we have to build our policies and our solutions around that belief. Mm-hmm. Has Atlanta done enough? Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, her goal to create more affordable housing in the city has there been enough done? I think I think it has been a start. I think that the the mayor's commitment to equity is is commendable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we did not have that commitment in the previous administration. Um, we have tried to do what we can. Um, to to support the administration as we can, but also, of course, as an equity organization, we also have to speak the truth and 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 be supportive of the community as well. But I think the the, the posture and the commitment of the mayor, I don't think, can be questioned. The, the 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 question though is is that can we create an environment of collaboration and contribution, right, where every aspect of our community can be encouraged through our mayor to do their fair share and their part in ensuring that Atlanta remains a city for everyone. And and, and, and the challenge is, is that the way that things have been positioned um, does not un- unfortunately create that particular outcome if you look at the way that public dollars are used to attract businesses and other key things that we see in the community. The, the, the most unfortunate aspect, in my opinion, of gentrification is not just about the people being forced out or the, the lack of investment in our future generations as a result of, of our kids not having the opportunity to have the resources they need. The, 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 the biggest crime from my um, perspective is the, the sanitizing of, 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 of the community's culture Right. Mm -hmm. So so when new people come into a community, it's not just about individuals being pushed out their their culture, 
their 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 experiences, the the value that they bring. Um, in many cases, that that those experiences that have made Atlanta the the number one city for hip hop music and for and for culture. You know, black culture, Atlanta's black culture created that and created that opportunity and created an economic boom for the city. And so now people are coming in and beginning to wash out that culture Mm -hmm. and sanitize that culture, even though it was that culture that attracted them to the city in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a really unfortunate thing. And and as a fourth generation Atlantan, so I I know what I'm talking about. Um, It's been really painful to watch and we have to we have to do something about it. So when you see a neighborhood in your community go from black and working class to predominantly white, what do you think? Idris Kaloon is a U.S. policy correspondent for The Economist, and he challenges you to see it this way. There are a few things to understand about gentrification. The big drawback that people cite is the displacement of longtime incumbent, often poor residents. And the academic literature on gentrification so far has not found a very large link between neighborhoods improving and outmobility, uh, as they call it, of poor residents. Now, there are a couple of things going on that explains that somewhat counterintuitive finding. One is that uh, gentrifying neighborhoods tend to have a lot of available space, so there are a lot of vacant properties that could be used for housing or new commercial developments. A lot of people who lived in those neighborhoods tend to have owned, um, and so they're somewhat immune to rental increases. And the third fact is that uh, poor people just in general, in in all parts of the city, gentrifying or not, uh, have high uh, rates of movement as well. So you don't see a a big or certainly as big as you would expect uh, rate of movement out of gentrifying neighborhoods. So that's one side is that the the negatives um, are somewhat hard to substantiate. And the second side that I think is important to think about is that there are advantages to uh, the process that we call gentrification, which I think of as poorer neighborhoods becoming richer. Because if you care about things like income segregation and racial segregation and white flight, and you think those things are bad, the process of gentrification uh, is one that that reverses those somewhat. Uh, And we know from the established literature that there has been uh, reductions in crime associated with the process that we call gentrification uh, and uh, improvement in amenities such as schools, uh, access to grocery stores, those kinds of things that I think make the picture a lot more complicated than it's uh, typically portrayed. Kaloon says longtime residents often reap the rewards of reduced crime and better amenities, and those who own homes often come out richer. The linkage between displacement and gentrification is not one that we've been able to substantiate uh, empirically. Now, there are probably individual cases of people getting pushed out that are important to highlight, and we should, and there's a role for activists in, in, in bringing those cases forward and making sure that those people are, are dealt with uh, fairly. And I, I, I do agree that it's not enough for middle class and rich people to move into these neighborhoods. That, that's not going to improve them on their own. But I, I want to also think about, well, what do we want for these neighborhoods? We want them to get better, but we don't want uh, we don't want it to be through the influx of new people. So what, what does that mean in terms of how the neighborhoods would improve? Is it that the people who already live there just get better jobs, or, or what is it? I think that there's, there's a tendency just to oppose uh, improvement and, and not to think about, well, what is it that we want, actually? And I also want to make the point that um, the opposite of a poor neighborhood getting more prosperous is it remaining poor. And we also know that there are substantial consequences for poor children, especially, who live in poor neighborhoods. Um, Their life outcomes sag tremendously. Their incomes sag. 
their chances of finishing high school, their opportunities languish, I think. Um, and so it's important to keep in mind that the counterfactual that we're dealing with is, is one in which a poor neighborhood doesn't become richer, becomes poorer, and that has tremendous intergenerational consequences. Mm, I know that you have said it is about um, not so much the neighborhood um, uh, becoming gentrified as it is um, really improving the outcomes for the, especially the younger people that are living in these neighborhoods. That's what your research has shown. Yes, yeah. I, it's something that I, I just wrote a long 10-page report on, on poverty in America, focusing a lot on children, in part because I think that, you know, in some in some cities, such as Baltimore, um, you will find that for every neighborhood that could be classified as gentrifying, 10 of them uh, were poor 20 or 30 years ago and remain poor today. Now, the, the children that live in those neighborhoods are just not going to have the opportunities that they should be afforded. Uh, one of the things that is a solution to uh, to reversing this this trend is improving integration by socioeconomic status. And if the process by which that happens is something we call gentrification, uh, then I think that it, it will produce good benefits for those children. That was GPB's Leah Fleming speaking with Idris Calhoun, a U.S. policy correspondent for The Economist. You also heard from Nathaniel Smith, director of the Partnership for Southern Equity. Share your thoughts with us on gentrification. Have you had to move out because of rising rents or high property taxes? Did you move into a neighborhood that's changed? Do you live outside Atlanta and think gentrification is happening in your area too? Join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk, and you can follow us on Instagram at GPB News. Or email us on second thought at gpb.org leave us a message at 404-500-9457. We take all comers. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. Special thanks today to Leah Fleming and Taylor Gant. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.